right, all right. Welcome to episode 13 of The Critical Social Worker, a revolutionary storytelling podcast. My name is Christian A. Stetler, and I'm a professor in the social work department at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And this morning, I'm broadcasting live from Ock Bay, just outside of Juneau, Alaska. Just to give a little bit of my uh, weekly weather update, spring is definitely here. It has stopped going back and forth. Um, the flowers are up. The whales are back, both orcas and humpbacks. Uh, you can look on my screen, and if you see a bunch of boats hovering around with people on them, that means there's whales out there because there's the tourist boats chase the whales around. But the birds are here. Bears are out. Uh, it's really a beautiful time to be here in Hawk uh, Bay. And uh, I'm, gonna, I'm joined by a very special guest this morning, Lee Bolin. Lee is, the, is currently the executive director of the Resource Center for Parents and Children in Fairbanks. Prior to her current position, she served as the Forensic Services Department Manager for Bristol Bay Area Health Corporation in Dillingham, which was her first experience working in the Child Advocacy Center field and where she grew passionate about that line of work. And we'll talk about that more later. Lee also currently serves as the president of the board of the Alaska Children's Alliance, as well as the treasurer for the Alaska Impact Alliance. Before moving to Alaska in 2015, she began her social work career in St. Louis, Missouri, working primarily with individuals living with chronic and persistent mental illnesses. Lee is a licensed clinical social worker in Alaska and Missouri. She received her BA in psychology from the University of Missouri, St. Louis, and her MSW with a concentration in nonprofit management from St. Louis University in 2012. Lee has served as a field instructor for our department at UAF uh, over the last four years. She has a passion for working with children and families as well as child advocacy work, and it shows in everything that she does. He's an incredible leader, supervisor, and field instructor, and the recent winner of the Heart of Social Work Awards. So I want to wel welcome you, Lee. Thank you for coming. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And we'll get right down to it. We got a great episode planned, some good dialogue coming up. And we can't wait to get down to it. But before we do all that, there's just a few things we should cover. So the Critical Social Worker is supported by the Social Work Department at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. However, we just want to be clear that any opinions expressed on this podcast, be it by myself or Lee or any of the listeners calling in, do not necessarily reflect the values or the thinking of the Social Work Department, the College of Liberal Arts, the University of Alaska Fairbanks, any of its affiliates or any other organization or individual. The opinions and ideas shared belong to the speaker alone. I think that's a real important part of this show because we want people, we want everybody to be to feel free to speak their mind and share their thoughts and, and the, their feelings and their opinions. Um, but if you don't like something that one of us says, then I offer that you take it up with the individual. You could do that in the chat box. You could call in later. There are several uh, different options for that. Um, or you could email me at castetler at alaska.edu. That's C-A-S-T-E-T-T-L-E-R at alaska.edu. Um, yeah, with that being said, I'd like to share our, miss our mission statement. The, mi the, the Critical Social Worker podcast unfolds unique stories and diverse perspectives to foster critical dialogue, empathy, and understanding for all its listeners. Through storytelling grounded in social work values, we aim to change ourselves and the world one story at a time. And one of those underlying themes of that mission statement is obviously the idea of telling stories. What the critical social worker, we believe that each individual is multi-layered, unique life experiences, and we want to help unfold some of those layers through stories that we can learn and grow from, stories that can help us build critical consciousness. Um, 
Yeah, and like I said, this all wouldn't be possible without the Department of Social Work from the University of Alaska Fairbanks, uh, the department that I work in. They're very supportive of the podcast. Uh, wouldn't be possible in its, in its current context without them, uh, or without us, I should say. But uh, some other things you should know if you're interested in, if you're thinking about getting into a social work program or uh, you, you know, you're looking in that area, is that uh, one of the things to think about is tuition. Well, UAF offers a, you can have a, get your degree completely online, whether you're in rural Alaska or whether you're in Florida or Hawaii or anywhere else in the world, um, and you get affordable in-state tuition, which is uh, very nice in comparison to some of the other programs that offer online degrees, such as uh, USC. Um, and so there's that. There, we're also one of the top-ranked um, online BSW programs, so that's another reason to join us. Um, we have a huge focus on, you know, indigenous values, indigenous thoughts, um, you know, decolonizing the classroom, decolonizing social work. So if you're interested in any of those things, uh, we also have very caring and attentive faculty. I've been a part of several different programs, university programs, and never have I been a part of a program uh, in which the professors are willing and as willing and as caring as they are here at the UAF Department of Social Work. So if you're interested at all, um, the best way to find us is just to Google UAF Social Work or to look for us on Facebook. Um, and you can find us. Well, what about you? Do you have a story to tell? Are you interested in coming on the show as a guest to tell your story, to share your stories? If you are, well, please hit me up with an email. Booked pretty far into the summer, but um, I could probably get people on in the late summer or early fall. Uh, and same way, you can reach out to me through here or you can email me at castetler at alaska.edu. And if you enjoy the Critical Social Worker, the one way that you can support us, support the show, the best way that you can do it is follow us here on Colin, tune in when we're live, ask questions, things like that. But also on Spotify and Apple, if you could leave us a review, um, that's the best way that you can keep this podcast going at this point. And I appreciate everybody's uh, participation and all the positive feedback that I've gotten. So uh, that's another thing. We definitely couldn't do it if nobody was ever listening. And all right, uh, I think that it's time to get this conscious party started for real. Hey, yo, everyone, gather around. It's story time. Brought to you by the University of Alaska Fairbanks, Department of Social Work, and the Conscious Party Productions. You are listening to The Critical Social Worker, a revolutionary storytelling podcast. A conscious party. Revolutionizing our minds. Elevating our consciousness. Changing our worlds. Your story. My story. Our, our story. story. <laughs> All right. All right. Um, well, to get this uh, to get this conscious party started, as always, I'm going to tell a little bit of a story. And I don't think I've shared this in, at least in its totality. I may have shared bits of it. But I wanted to tell how I got into the field of social work uh, just a bit before I turn it over to some dialogue with Lee. Um, I was a troubled kid, troubled young adult. I'm not going to go through all that business right now. But I had just gotten out of some bigger type of trouble. And... Uh, at this point in my life, I had only like bounced around with, you know, I'd work a job and until I got paid a couple times and then it wasn't enough motivation to go back. So I was bouncing around. If, uh, I've talked about before, I went through some drug addiction and treatment and whatnot. And anyways, I was looking for a job. And in the hometown that I lived in, you know, that the jobs people like me get sent to are like going to work. At, it's called the dog food factory where, you know, you could smell it and they, they process dog food and you get paid 
you know, really low wages. And um, I didn't want to do that. I was willing to be broke versus versus go and do that. And I really, uh, you know, have high praises for the people, for folks that are willing to do, go and do hard work like that. But it wasn't for me. And uh, I was looking and looking and couldn't find anything. You know, I was trying to be cool and like work at the mall or something like that, somewhere where I could, you know, have a social life. Um, but a friend of my father's who worked with um, worked with the state, he advised me to um, go and apply at this group home that he had worked at when he first started out, and it was called Progressive Youth. And um, they had uh, boys with conduct disorder that uh, were in the either in the foster care system or whatever. They had to be removed. Some of them had to be removed from their homes. They lived in a home. I went there and I never thought that they would ever hire a person like me. I was like, I'm going to go to this interview and they're definitely not going to hire me. But they did hire me. And um, through a series of events and whatnot, I learned that I was good at it. And I moved over to a larger treatment center, treatment facility. And before I knew it, I was at a very pretty young age and having never been successful at anything before, um, I was supervising a 100 bed uh, facility uh, for males and for both boys and girls. Um, it's called Cottonwood Treatment Center, and uh, it's a very exciting and interesting place to work. I love the kids. I still have the fondest memories of them. Um, and in other ways, there was a lot of problems, uh, which we can maybe talk. We could, uh, Lee and I can compare notes about that later, maybe. But anyways, I was working there forever, uh, for several years, supervisor, like I said, but I had no education. Didn't even really know what that meant, to be honest with you. And I realized I had nowhere to go. At that point, you know, I could work as the supervisor, not getting paid that much for the work that I did forever, or I could, you know, try to improve my standing. And so I had an opportunity to move to Alaska to work for the Arctic Slope Native Association. They supported me getting a um, getting my degree. But really how I got into the field, like obviously I'm working in the field of social work, working in a treatment center, even though I didn't know what that meant. Um, when I was taking classes just via distance, I think that the, some of the classes were actually was before, you know, uh, rural Alaska had high speed Internet. So we had classes on the phones. And one of those classes that I took for a general requirement was intro to social work. And um, uh, one of the professors that's still here, Dr. Vicenda, was teaching the class and she reached out to me and said she thought I would be good for the program based on the stuff I was talking about. So they got me into the cohort um, and I worked in so uh Got my BSW, moved on to Hawaii, got my MSW, and uh, actually left the field of social work after dabbling in it for a little while. I didn't like the boxes that I felt like social work was trying to place me into. I had different ideas, and um, I left the field and went in, and I started to get a – I was trying to get a PhD in American Studies and later Education, and now I've moved that over to Indigenous Studies at UAF. But anyways, I'd left, and then um, – an a couple opportunities opened up once I moved back to Alaska, and one of them being this as the professor of social work. And I, I kind of hesitate to tell the story this way because I feel like people go, you're not dedicated to so as dedicated to social work as you should be. And I would say in counter to that, or, you know, as a disclaimer, would be that, you know, I've always been interested in social work, whether even I knew what it was or not, you know, and, you know, I'm always up on the field and, and reading and participating in things. So whether or not I'm I was directly like engaged in an actual job titled social worker. I've always been involved. Um, and so I think that's part of what brought me back. Social work was meant for me. It kind of reclaimed me with this job as, a, as the professor of social work, you know, and as the host of this podcast. And the, I think the big theme of this story for me is that 
people often ask me, you know, Christian or Professor Stetler, why did you join? Why did you become a social worker? How did you join social work? And the answer was like, I didn't make that choice. It chose me and it reclaimed me a couple of different times. Um, and when Leah and I were talking about talking in preparation for this podcast, for this episode, um, you know, she, she had shared something along the lines of, uh, you know, working with child advocacy that she didn't ever, that was never her choice. She didn't, that you didn't intend to do that. It wasn't something like you had mapped out for yourself, but that it had kind of claimed you or it had kind of chosen you. And I was wondering, Lee, first of all, uh, once again, thank you very much for, uh, you know, giving us your time today and being willing to share with us. Um, so welcome to the podcast. But I was wondering if you might share, you know, your story in that regard. Like, how did how did child advocacy choose you? Yeah, um, it is weird how you just get pulled where you're supposed to go. And I definitely experienced that in this field. Um, in St. Louis, my experience was working primarily with adults. Um, I did work at a domestic violence shelter for a while and I did work with kids there, but I was working with parents mostly. Um, And uh, my spouse is also a clinical social worker and he was always, you know, we need to get our clinical license so we can get National Service Corps and get our student loans paid off. That was kind of our big like um, push and goals as we were kind of working through our licensure. And, um, all my work in St. Louis was really like community based. Like I was out in the field. I was going with people to appointments. I was checking in on people at their houses. I was, um, I was there when people's babies were born. I was, I went to funerals, you know, I was really kind of out in the community. And so, um, we ended up moving to Dillingham, um, that was kind of a dream my spouse always had. And I was kind of like, okay, yeah, we can go for a few years, see what happens. Um, and we ended up, um, both getting jobs as mental health clinicians. And I had never had a job before where I sat at, in a chair and people came in and out for therapy all day. That had never been my gig. And that's very much what that job was. And I lasted about three weeks and I was like, I cannot um, do this. This is not for me. I I need, I need to, there needs to be more things going on. And not to say that therapy isn't, I mean, therapy is so valuable and it helps so many people and it's so important, but it really just isn't for everybody. And I don't mind a portion of my career being therapy. I still have one therapy client right now. Um, but it is not something that I can do all day. It is just not. And I admire people who can. Um, so I am in Dillingham. We've already moved. I don't want to do this job anymore. And the only open position (laughs) that I was even remotely interested that was still in the field was uh, managing the child advocacy center. And so I went to the program manager at the time and was just like, Hey, would this be an option? Um, I had a lot of program management background. I had never really worked with kids, you know, as a primary focus. And they were like, yeah, let's do it. And so I had to kind of learn that whole field. And once I got into it, I was like, wow, like just the moving parts, the dynamics, the building relationships, the community piece, the outreach piece, the prevention piece. I mean, it's so robust. Um, Child advocacy work is such a robust 
portion of social work um, that I just, I didn't even know existed, honestly. I, when I was an undergrad, I had, um, I was a research assistant and I actually was working um, in the same building as a child advocacy center. Like I knew what it was. I knew that that's where kids go after something's happened, um, that kind of thing. But I didn't know like what all goes into that and how to make things work. So um, yeah, I managed the child advocacy center um, out in Bristol Bay um, for almost five years. And then I moved to Fairbanks. I honestly tried, I was leaving that field. Like I was like, okay, that was enough. I was done. Um, I got a job um, at a different agency here in Fairbanks. And after about six weeks, I was like, I really missed that work. Um, and I actually got a job where I currently am um, to be the, to start a behavioral health program, primarily for the kids that um, have been through the Child Advocacy Center. So it, it picked me twice. Like I definitely tried to like um, move away from it when we left Dillingham, just because I thought that that was what was causing um, me to feel, you know, just that compassion fatigue and burnout that we all talk about. But um, it wasn't, it was um, other things that I had to work out and, you know, I'm still involved in that field and I'm still, it's, it's such important work and I, I'm really privileged to be able to um, be in it still. Yeah. Well, I think the field's privileged to have you based on, you know, all the feedback that I get from everybody else. I've, you know, your name was, um, I knew your name and, and what went with it before I ever uh, saw your face. So I think, you know, especially in a place like Fairbanks, those reputations seem to, to be pretty important. Um, and uh, so, so yeah, I want to thank you for everything that you do for the field of child advocacy. And I was wondering if you might tell us a little bit about what is child advocacy? Some of us may be listening and saying, you know, I kind of know what that is, but does that mean child protective services? Does that mean like working with, you know, victims of domestic violence? What does that, what does that mean? Yeah. So the Child Advocacy Center movement started in the 80s out of Huntsville, Alabama. Um, and it was basically before child advocacy centers, if there was an allegation of child maltreatment, um, whether that's sexual abuse, felony level physical abuse, it could be any kind of myriad of child maltreatment. Um, a child would have to go to the police station and then they'd have to go meet with child welfare and then they'd have to go meet with medical and then, you know, separately would be a therapist maybe if they ended up getting a referral. And so it was very fragmented and um, child advocacy centers came about because a district attorney in Alabama was like, what if we just had a one-stop shop where kids could go to one place and everybody converged around the child. The child's not having to go to these multiple places because the prosecution rates for child maltreatment are already really low. And when you add all these complicating factors with systems, which is why social work is such a good profession to have a background in with child advocacy, because all it is is systems. It's just helping people maneuver through multiple systems. So um, child advocacy centers, um, Pam Carol Lunas is a huge mentor to all of us um, up here in Alaska. She helped bring um, child advocacy centers to Alaska. And so um, there's a myriad of child advocacy centers throughout the state presently. Um, we have, I used to be able to rattle off the numbers, but there's a lot of new ones starting in places. So I don't even want to, at least over 15, if you include the ones that are um, new and pulling together a multidisciplinary team. And so basically a child advocacy center um, 
is the multidisciplinary team. So it's everyone coming together. So there's a memorandum of agreement that all these folks say, I will work with all the other partners in collaboration in um, investigating and providing services to children who've experienced child maltreatment. So Stevie's Place is the Child Advocacy Center in Fairbanks, um, where I work. Um, it's a part of the Resource Center for Parents and Children. And uh, so we serve the entire interior, and we also serve the North Slope. Um, there's not a child advocacy center there either. So we have a really large service area. And so we have, um, as a part of our team, multiple um, memorandums of agreement. Uh, there are multiple agencies as a part of a memorandum of agreement. So including like Fairbanks Police Department, but also North Pole Police Department and North Slope Police Department, um, Office of Children's Services, also multiple um, mental health clinicians and behavioral health, um, community behavioral health centers in the area. Um, we have a contract with Fairbanks Memorial Hospital to provide 24-7 um, forensic medical care. We have um, the DJJ office because we have children who act out sexually with other children, um, and we look into that, make sure they get treatment. Uh, we have just so many folks that come together. ICWA, Tiananmen Cheese Conference, ICWA's program, that's really important to be at the table. So we all meet monthly and then also when individual cases happen it's the whole team responding so it's all the folks that would be appropriate for that particular case so it's a really dynamic um it's really dynamic work it's always constantly moving every case that comes has different needs has different things going on has different um you know things to solve i mean not just criminally but like how do we help resources. You know, how do we help it? We really try to wrap services around the family. So victim advocacy is a huge part of this. Um, so we have, whenever a child comes in, you know, there, we have forensic interviewers who are trained to provide a neutral trauma informed interview. So if nothing's happened, a child's going to leave, not even knowing why they're there. Um, we really are neutral. We have to make sure that everything, um, is everything is really done in preparation. If this were to go to court, if this were to go to trial um, and then victim advocacy is helping, you know, provide resources and making sure that families have everything they need um, to heal. You know, uh, we treat everything like it's going to go to trial. Not everything does. And the healing is really within the family unit, regardless of those external outcomes, because we don't have control over that. So it's a really, um, it's interesting. It's a lot of relationship building. It's a lot of making sure that um, the team's voices are heard, that everybody is respectful. Um, and it's it's amazing work and not a lot of people know about it. Um, and I think that we're getting the word out in a big way. Yeah. So, you know, I'm just as you're as you're talking about it, I have all this imagery going on in my head on, you know, what it what it would take to perform in a, in you know, positions in child advocacy. And, uh, you know, I think it's in stark contrast. I found myself, you know, agreeing with you in my feelings about, you know, therapy and how it can be useful and whatnot, but not for me, you know, maybe in small doses, but like, I definitely couldn't sit there and do it all day long. Um, and so child, at least the, the work that you're doing in child advocacy sounds like it stands in stark contrast as far as like, you know, it's these larger systems are at play, you know, um, every, Every situation and every outcome is going to be going to be vastly different, I imagine. 
um, the context of the situations. And so I think the, some of the positive sides of that are obviously, you know, like the adventureness of it, the, you know, the being able to help folks and whatnot. But what, what is it about you? Because it, it can, I imagine that it can also be stressful and whatnot. So what is it about child advocacy that keeps you going, that motivates you to, to get up with the energy that it would take every single day? Um, you know, why, why do you do it? Yeah, I mean, it is exhausting. When I was in Dillingham, I was the primary forensic interviewer, but also managing the program, um, supervising the staff of the, the staff. And it was a lot. It was a lot. Um, I'm still trained to do interviews, but it, I think I, it, it's not something I can do like often. Um, it's something that I think really is grating on your soul. And I think we have to, as social workers, pay attention to that. Um, so I, you know, can help step in in a pinch, but I'm not doing a lot of that face-to-face work that I used to do. Um, I think what keeps me in it now is supporting the staff that are doing that work because I truly know what that is. Um, I know how it can hurt. I know how hard it can be. I also know how rewarding it can be. And I know when the successes happen, they're really big and we really celebrate those. Um, so I really like, um, where I am now, where I can support the staff in, making sure that they're taking care of themselves, that they have the proper tools to do their jobs well, and also to have fun when they can have fun and make the environment psychologically safe so that they only have to worry about what their job is and not any of the extra toxicity that can happen, you know, in workplaces, just in general. I mean, that's just kind of a thing that happens at agencies. So, you know, making sure the agency is psychologically safe, making sure the staff have what they need, making sure that the management has what they need so that they can um, keep doing this work is imperative. Yeah, well, let me ask you this. How do you how do you support, you know, your social workers in that regard? But also, how do you take care of yourself so that you are able to support others? Because I know, you know, that's got to be one of the number one priorities because you obviously can't support and help others if you don't feel that if you don't feel that way yourself and so how first so let me rephrase that first of all how do you take care of yourself and how do you help others take care of themselves i always get asked how i take care of myself and i'm probably the worst um one <laughs> to answer that i um i definitely tend to gravitate more towards the workaholic side of life um and i don't recommend it and so in this regard, I feel like it's a do as I say, not as I do, which I don't want to be that way, but I, I, I do recognize that in myself. Um, I read a lot. I really love to read. I, um, I think, it, you know, going to a different place for a bit isn't bad when you're reading a book. Um, I'm very crafty. I like to knit and cross stitch and make things. Um, and I'll recognize that in myself if I haven't done that in a while. Um, that's kind of my own barometer of, you know, how I'm doing. Uh, cause it really does bring me joy. So like, even that's something like I'll have to force myself to do at first, but then if, once I get going, then I'm like, Oh, okay. Like, and I can kind of pull that out of me. So I like to be creative in that regard. Um, I really like to travel. Um, my spouse and I like to go to a lot of places and, um, just see what different parts of the world I'm on my way to 50. I'm trying to go to all 50 States. I'm pretty close. I think I have eight left. So that's our current goal. Um, so there is all of that. I 
think that making, so when regards to the staff, um, I really think that work shouldn't be a place that you dread going to. And I have worked at places that I pulled into the parking lot and I didn't want to get in my car. And so, um, I have strived so hard to make the work environment really just a place that people don't mind being. I don't want to say they want to be there because it's work. Like you got to work, you know, we live in capitalist society, but you know, I want it to be a place that you don't dread to go. And I feel like we've done that. Um, I also the making sure that folks have the resources to do their job, um, the training to do their job, making sure that everyone, um, cause that's where I feel a lot of burnout happens too, when you're thrown into situations and you don't know what to do. And so the support is really important. I also think that, um, you know, trying to have like little, I know that it's so like hokey, but it's actually like fun. You know, like for Halloween, we drew names and dressed up as each other (laughs) for Halloween. And then we all had to like guess who everybody was. And it was, it was fun. Like it was genuinely like fun. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with like book it, like the pizza hut, like book club. So we started doing that at work. Um, so we have to read like so many books and we'll have a pizza party. Uh, so just like, trying to give tangible benefits like bonuses and raises when you can, um, knowing that we're a nonprofit, trying to have fun when we can, and also just making sure that folks have the resources they need to do their jobs effectively and feel like they know how to handle a situation. And if they don't, they know where to turn. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And I really like the, you know, the, stories of you be you all being creative the halloween story and whatnot i think you know things like that brings brings folks together and so often you know in this just this day and age but especially in social work we can all be out you know we could be in our own room delivering therapy by ourselves for eight hours a day and not have a chance to connect with other folks which should be really important you know considering the things especially what you're talking about in childhood advocacy the things that you would have to see and hear about and experience so it's important for you to you know to have some you know some collective time together where you grow together and, and uh, build camaraderie and whatnot. When you're talking about, um, you know, these teams that work in child advocacy, I can't remember exactly how you described it, but I was wondering what happens when you have a conflict, when you have a disagreement about what to do or how to approach the situation? Do you have a, do you have a strategy that you use to resolve it? What, how do you, how do you go about that when you have a conflict? Yeah. I mean, and that's where like the advocacy part of child advocacy is so important. So, Yeah, that happens. I mean, you, there's so many places that that can happen to. I mean, I can name a myriad of ways that a conflict can arise within the team and you have to figure it out. Um, You know, a basic one that happens often is there's a pretty, there's a forensic interviewing protocol that we have to utilize um, and it makes, it keeps us neutral. It, It follows all the things for court. So that way you know, these interviews can be entered into court as evidence and, you know, not thrown out. And, um, it helps the kids if they have to testify and, you know, it kind of, and it captures that moment in time of what was disclosed. Often we'll have, you know, folks, um, want us to ask questions that aren't in the protocol and we have to figure out how to answer 
or how to ask those questions within the protocol with try to get the same information without being direct or just flat out asking. Um, you know, I think that's one example. There's so many others. I mean, there's examples all the way up to, you know, sending it to prosecution and the DA, um, doesn't accept it to prosecution. And, you know, we are asking why I think to even just entertain, I had different ideas, you know, it sounds so foreign right now. So yeah, I think those are the big things to do in those situations. Yeah. You know, when you're talking about it, I, I feel like, you know, in society where, you know, in, in America, we could say in the United States of America, like it's opinions are sometimes like choosing sides. Like there's only, there's two sides to, to the same coin and that you, you're either over here or you're over here, but should be a lot more nuanced than, you know, what you're talking about change. You should change your mind. And I think especially as a social worker, you know, where you're from the time you start, you know, getting your education to work in, you should probably have a lot of these moments where you're like, oh, wow, you know, the way I used to look at it, supposed to be doing a lot of reflective work, looking inwards uh, at yourself and your own views and, and whatnot. You should have over your social work career from the time you start, you know, getting your education to work in, you should probably have a lot of these moments where you're like, oh, wow, you know, the way I used to look at it. And I think another thing to look at there is, you know, sometimes that takes time. You did a good job at, descri at describing, you know, when you, when somebody gets new information and then was not really right. And, you know, I'm processing this information and, you know, I think differently now. And I was so passionate about it before. And I think another thing to look at there is, you know, sometimes that takes time. You did a good job at, descri at describing, you know, when you, when somebody gets new information and then they change their mind. But sometimes that takes time as well. You know, it has to kind of plant itself in someone's mind and they've got to work through it and they've got to have some more experiences that kind of validate it. Um, and so we should be more open than that. And people, you know, it would, it would allow people to be more, especially as social workers, to be more free to share the things that they think and feel and experience and uh, help us move forward collectively. You know, we should be coming through like this instead of, you know, staying over here in our separate, separate ways. Um, Yes. So I also wanted to take some time and talk about, um, you know, you just won the award. Uh, what is it called? The Heart of Social Work Award. And that's for your role as a uh, as a field instructor. And for many those of us that are in social work should should know about this. But if you don't or you're still a social work student, it's still unclear when you are a senior going for your bachelor's of social work. And if you're trying to get a master's, but. For your BSW, as your, for your senior year, you have to do basically an, an unpaid internship in most cases um, called a practicum. Basically, you're going to practice. And so what happens is, you know, you maybe talk with your um, your rep at the university and you tell them what you want. Or maybe they have you fill out a form and the kind of things you're interested in. And then they'll maybe give you some options, set you up with an interview, maybe just like a job. And you would... Uh, mutually with the, the, the placement, select each other, and you would do an internship there for, I don't know, like 20 hours, what is it, 18 hours a week for, for, for two semesters, um, something like that. And uh, they would be put uh, under someone like Lee that has a degree in social work that's been working in the field for a while. And my thoughts on this are kind of twofold, is that, you know, you, you often hear folks say that, you know, it's the most meaningful, it's the most important part of uh, yes, of, of of your social work education, which I say can and should be true, but not always. It could be not true because you could have somebody who, or be in a placement that had negative, uh, had a negative culture or had things going on. Maybe the, the, 
the person was too busy for you. You didn't get any real experience. So there's a lot of, there's a large realm in, uh, in, in what someone's experience might be going to a practicum. Uh, but obviously you do it well. And uh, they, we keep sending you a lot of people. You're winning awards. Um, your students love you. Uh, the, the folks that you're working with, Christina at the university loves you. Um, you know, what is it? What, what about it? What makes, what makes someone in your position good at what they do? Like, how do you support your students? Yeah. Um, I think it could very easily be looked at as like an, Oh, another thing I have to do. Um, I think it really is about your approach in taking on students because it is a lot of work. Um, and we've been practicum students and we know what that's like um, to maybe have a supervisor that didn't give you attention or you didn't feel like you were able, you know, in whatever way um, to get what you needed out of those sites. And so I think that experience for me, I did have one practicum um, that I had some of those experiences that uh, I think motivates me, but also I really love having students because it helps keep me grounded in why I'm in this field. When you have a person who is like bright eyed with like every one of them has a notebook, they have this little notebook and they sit in your office and they're like, just take a note. They're just like so excited and they come with new ideas. And, and I think it's just so nice to see that. I think I have to see that. <laughs> um, Cause so often, you know, you get bogged down with this work. And you're like, what are we doing? You know, <laughs> and then you have this student who finally got to make a follow up phone call and get someone a resource and they followed through and they're like, wow, this is so exciting. And you're like, it is. Isn't that exciting? Um, so I think there's that. And I think um, the questions that students ask and it's not just the ones they have to ask, like it's the ones that they're genuinely curious about why this is the way this is. And I love that. I love um, when they have a question about a, a procedure, a way that we do things or a form. You know, um, I had one intern who was just like, I hate these intake forms because we asked this question like three times. So I'm like, cool, like, let's change that, you know. Um, and then I think that empowers the student, too, because like they're able to actually make tangible changes. It is a fresh set of eyes, regardless of their level of experience or not. Um they have a fresh set of eyes that we're just seeing the same things every day. So it's nice. It's so refreshing to have that. Um, I really like having bachelor's and master's level interns. I think um, they both bring a lot to the table and they're just, it's so nice to just, it's refreshing. It just, it's truly just refreshing. It's just nice to have someone that's eager and interested in the field and wants to learn. And um, I love it when they, have an ethical dilemma and like even them just recognizing like, Hey, this thing is happening and maybe they don't know how to proceed, but they've at least acknowledged like this thing made me feel weird and I don't know how to move forward. And it's like, okay, let's talk about it. Like what, you know, and then going through like what an ethical dilemma is when two, um, two pieces of ethics are combating against each other and we have to figure out which one, you know, and like, or more, two or more. Um, but it, it's just nice. It's just nice to, um, work that out and talk it through and um, have that designated hour a week where they can do that. And it's also, I mean, I look at that hour a week that not just for them to have that supervision, but also for me to reflect too. Um, 
because I'm learning from them and they have questions and they're bringing things in. And I, I think every time I've had a practicum student policy hasn't been something they've had a lot of experience with. And I love legislative advocacy. I love that part that side of things. And so kind of exposing them to that world too is really exciting. Like when we go through the learning agreement, that's always the one that I'm like, okay, like what, what time of year is it? Can we do federal? Can we do state? Like what could we, you know, I like that part too. So I think I'm just a nerd and I like social work and it works out to have students um, who are passionate um, inherently from their nature of where they are in in the learning um, in their life to come in and do that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's, it's really refreshing to hear the way that you talk about it with enthusiasm, because I think too often, and this could just be for somebody entering the field as well, but like whether it's a practicum student, somebody new on the job, too often they come in with that, like, you know, bright eyed eagerness to change the world. And sometimes, you know, that's, it, that can be a little bit irrational or unrealistic. But on the other hand, you know, oftentimes they come in, like I said, with that bright eyed, you know, excitedness to learn and to make change and whatever. And they're like told by the OG at the place, no, 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 you know, this is the way we do it, you know. And I think the, o- the person that's been around for so long, and this is not like saying all people that have been social workers or even the majority, I'm just saying they're out there that have become kind of disgruntled and like become apathetic about the job. And, you know, like even how you described it as, you know, it could be another thing that you have to do. And I think some people look at it that way over time, you know, just all these tasks and more and more to do and have empathy with them as well. You know, being a social worker, supervisor or whatnot can be a lot of work over the years, you know, it's a lot to take in. Um, but it's really, really refreshing for me to hear somebody, you know, that's enthusiastic about it, that's looking, that sees the, you know, uh, the mutual benefit, you know, the reciprocity that comes with that. Um, you know, I was wondering if you might have a story or anything that you could share about a way that a student may have contributed to your agency or to, to what you had going on that, that maybe wouldn't have been present without them. Yeah, I think um, there's so many. I mean, we've hired a lot of our students. Um, so even in that regard, I feel like practicum supervisors, you know, you could be training folks to work at your agency, um, especially with, you know, it's hard to hire folks right now. So it is nice to have people come in and like actually want to stick around. That's cool. Um, I... I started um, supervising students as soon as I had my bachelor's at um, a domestic violence shelter. I was able to supervise, you know, undergrad. Uh, and I think that's, you know, I, I've just kind of always, it's always just been a part of what I do. Okay. So a student who really was exceptional. I think um, there's just so many examples. It's like hard. I, I really liked, um, an interaction I had once with a student who like wasn't, I really like when you're working with somebody and they, they think they don't have the ideas, but they do. I, th- I feel so often that, that we, I think even, you know, everyone, I don't think this is just like a social work student, you know, you think that there's some like big secret way to solve problems or there's like a right way or there's a thing, you know, and, and helping them understand that like, we're all just kind of figuring it out. Like, this isn't just, um, we're all, you know, things can work here that might not work here. And we're all, you know, 
I think that that's really important. I really have appreciated, um, students that, um, are able to take on additional, like, like just now, um, I had a student this week who was able to draft letters to send to legislators regarding, um, SB 65. It's, um, a bill that has some components that impact the child advocacy center work. Um, it was on my to-do list. I was trying to get it done, but it really wasn't. And they were really interested in this legislation and drafted the letter and, um, I signed it and they signed it and we were able to send it off. And so I think not just looking at a student as like someone that can answer the phone, but like there are things that can get done that are actually helping them, um, learn and can actually help me get things done too. You know, I don't know. I, I, there's so many examples of ways that students have just been so helpful and impactful in the work. I can't even think of one in particular, like that's, that was this week. Um, I, I like when they, I think with the way learning agreements are written, you really do have to at least have a touch point on so many different areas of the field that finding someone that is actually passionate about a piece of something they didn't know is really exciting too. You know, going back to that policy piece, like having somebody that's like, I didn't know that I liked reading policy and like seeing if it's relevant and that kind of stuff. Um, and I actually really do like that. And there's such a need for that in social work. Um, or tying, I really like tying things back to social work, you know, things that you don't, might not think are social worky, but they are, especially with that systemic involvement piece, um, and kind of painting that picture. So, yeah, I don't know if that answered your question, but I think there's just so many avenues where students are so refreshing and eager and want to learn that they can just, if you funnel that energy into, the work, it, it really helps it get done. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you think about a student, social work student, especially when you're talking about like um, people in their senior year, potentially taking on other classes that they hadn't finished or, you know, for your MSW advanced standing, you know, it's what's like five classes a semester, five graduate level classes a semester, plus an internship, plus whatever else you have going on in your life. Um, it can feel like you're alone in the wilderness, right? Like you're just doing all these things, but you're trying to learn all this stuff, but you really don't have anyone to talk to. And I think social workers in the field feel this way too. You don't have anybody to talk to. So that supervision is important, you know, just to have somebody to bounce ideas off and to listen to, to listen to you. You know what I mean? It's important. So I, just, I know you just won the award, but so, so congratulations for that. But I just want to commend you just the way that you talk about it, the enthusiasm that you show is, is very important. So I'm very grateful that we had, that our students are going, that some of our students are going to you. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you. So I have, this is what I have planned for the rest of the, the episode. I would like to ask you just some short, quick uh, questions about yourself, interesting questions. And then I'll ask you a couple. I have two critical questions that I'm going to ask you to, to close off my portion, and then we'll open it up to the audience and we'll wrap it up. Um, so you talked about that you like to read and it helps you. Uh, what's, a, what's a book that's related to social work that could help any of our listeners, uh, you know, maybe students that can help them move forward, learn something about fearless them. organizations. Um, it's a book that I think is so impactful in creating a psychologically safe work environment. And even if you aren't in a position, um, like a leadership position, reading it yourself and, um, 
recommending it to supervisors. Um, I recommended it to supervisors in the past. Um, I think it's a tangible way to show how a psychologically safe work environment impacts clients and impacts the work that we do. It's not just to make us feel better. It's impacting everyone that we touch that comes through those doors. Okay. So fearless organization, check that out. And what about say, you know, one of those times you needed to get away and you don't want anything to do. Well, I'm not saying you don't want anything to do with social work, but you know, you don't want, that's not where you're trying to go. Like a fictional book. What, what's something that you would recommend? Oh gosh. Um, I don't really read the same books twice. I went through this really big uh, books about sailboats phase where I was like, I want a sailboat and I'm going to sailboat away. Um, so there is a book. There's a few books I can't even think off the top of my head, but I was reading sailboat books. Um, I mean, just kind of, I'm part of the book of the month club. And so I'll pick out a book each month. Um, so I'll just read like funny I just read, I don't even know. I read just weird stuff too. Um, the House on the Cerulean Sea is social worky though, kind of, but that is such a good book. That's probably the best recent book I've read. Um, it is kind of social worky though, but it's sweet. And it's, it's about like a caseworker that he's a caseworker for mythical or um, for magical children. I don't know. It's a really sweet little book. And I really enjoyed that. What was that one called again? The House on the Cerulean Sea. What's on the Cerulean Sea? All right. Uh, all right. So you also said that you like to travel. What's, a, what's one of the most magical? It doesn't have to be necessarily your favorite place, but what's somewhere you went and you were like, this was just a great magical experience? Iceland. Iceland. What is it about Iceland? It's not kind of similar to here, isn't it? Fjord? It kind of is. Um, it is similar. I don't know. It was just feeling that remoteness, which I guess you do feel in Alaska. There's probably a connection there. Um, I also really liked, um, I studied abroad in India when I was working on my master's and I really liked that feeling of like, there's so many people that you're kind of just like anonymous within the people. Um, and India is such a special place. Those are probably my top two. Yeah, both. I've never been over to, the, I've traveled quite a bit, but I've never been over to those areas of the world. So those are on my destination list as well. Um, so one of the themes that I've, that's kind of manifested itself on this podcast is we've talked a lot about kinship, but it's went into kinship with, with uh, animals. And uh, we talked about it every week for like maybe the last 10 episodes. And so I saw in your, uh, you know, the little bio for your award that you have two cats, Evie and Florence. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we have a cat too. I talked about this last week or the week before maybe, but we have a cat named Bunny that we brought with us from Hawaii. And he's one of the most eccentric, interesting cats. You know, he goes on walks with us. He basically roams the forest, but he came home like, I don't know, like a month ago at this point, uh, couldn't put any weight on his leg. And so we didn't know what was wrong. We thought it might, it didn't look broken, but we didn't know. And weeks went by and he was a little bit better, but it kind of regressed. We finally took him to the vet, and it was nothing. It was just some soft tissue damage, but it was, I guess, peace of mind. So now he's back out there roaming, <laughs> roaming the forest again. But, uh, yeah, I was wondering about, like, you know, how do Evie and – is that their names, Evie and Florence? How do they help you in kinship with animals? You know, how does that contribute to our lives? You know, so Florence – she both of them are rescue cats, but Florence um, – she is very medically fragile and requires medication three times a day. And like, she has to go to the vet 
and she has to have special food and she's a lot. Um, we didn't know that when we got her, but I'm go- I'm grateful we did. I love her very much. Uh, but I think she's really taught me about like patience and <laughs> like, um, how to take care of, you know, a vulnerable animal, um, how, like what that means for us to, you know, um, but she's doing really well. She does well if we give her a medication. So she's just been great. Um, Evie, she was pretty traumatized when we got her. And so she's able to, um, you know, now she can like cuddle us and like, we'll jump up on the couch and stuff, which like a few years ago was out of the question. And so just creating that space for them. I mean, our house is their world, you know, so (laughs) creating that space where they're safe and cared for, I think makes us better people. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right. So let's get to the, I got two critical questions, one, one specific and then one more general, but, um, so we're talking about child advocacy and, and, you know, you mentioned you work, um, around your area, but also up on the North slope, which, um, for those unfamiliar is Inupiaq, uh, territory up there. And, um, you know, pretty much the state of Alaska in general is just full of, you know, different, uh, pockets of, of different peoples that have been here f- for a very long time. And I was wondering, like, how do you all, cause you mentioned ICWA as well. And I know, you know, to even add more context to it, you know, when I, that treatment center that I talked about supervising, one of the negative things about it, well, one of the positive things about it was that it gave that I had access to these kids, which changed my life significantly. But one of the really, and use a curse word here, but one of the really shitty things about it, especially looking back was the way that they sent native kids from all over the United States from, we had uh, native kids from Hawaii. We had native kids from um, South Dakota, North Dakota, Montana. Uh, we had native kids from California. We had native kids from Alaska. A lot of our kids were from Alaska. And, um, you know, looking back on it, it's, it's kind of messed up that they sent, you know, kids to some treatment center in Utah, which many of the people working at, the, most of the people working at the facility were great people and wanted to do the best. But, you know, Utah is a very different place and culture than the places where all these kids came from. And, uh, like, just the separation of family that I, that I saw and, and think about, look back on the, uh, some of the, you know, how we weren't given any kind of cultural training, which I'm not sure that would make that much of a difference just to training anyways, but we weren't prepared in any way, shape or form. And so some people are better at navigating that than others, but you know, even myself, I look at back some of the ideas and some of the ways I looked at things and I'm like, you know, I, you know, we could have did better for those kids in, in many ways. And so I know that they've, you know, had, they have had to take the children back movement and it doesn't happen so much anymore. But, you know, how do you navigate those, those complexities in a place like Alaska where you're working with, you know, uh, different indigenous native populations, different individuals? You know, how do you make sure that you are prepared to do that and that you, you know, are able to pay your respects in the best way possible to have the best outcomes, which may be different from, you know, what we think or we feel should be the outcome. They may look at it differently. You know, how do you, how do you make sure that you're doing that, uh, you know, in a, in a, in an appropriate and in a way that respects the individual and where they come from and, and their background and their culture? Yeah. Um, the biggest thing is to shut up and listen. <laughs> I think, I think as a white person moving to rural Alaska, the last thing anybody needs to hear is how the things should be. 
um, you know, indigenous communities have been around long before colonizers have been around and things were pretty good before we came along. And I think it takes some recognition in that as a social worker working in rural areas, working with Alaska Native folks, working with Indigenous communities. I learned so much by just being quiet and listening and taking that in and recognizing that. And I've seen a lot of people that take personal offense to the things that are said because, you know, it is about how white people came and white people hurt indigenous communities. And, um, I mean, it is, but that's also what happened. And I think we can't ignore that. Um, I also think eating the food is really, I know that sounds so basic, but like going to potlucks and trying new foods and being a part of that community is so huge. Um, and also, um, making friends and being a person. I don't know. I feel like too, an issue I struggle with with social work is I think we are trained to kind of be robots and we're supposed to be this very clinical clean slate and we're not supposed to, the clients aren't supposed to know anything about us and we're not supposed to tell anything about us and we're not supposed to. And I, I think, you know, self-disclosure in a therapy session should be used with significant discretion. But when you're living in a rural community, just hiding your house all day is weird. Um, and so it's okay to be a part of the community. And I think people want to interact with you more if they see you as a part of the community. Um, and I think too, like the first time I went berry picking was with a client and it was an amazing experience. Um, like being willing to learn new things. I don't know anything. I never berry picked. I mean, I have like strawberry patches at my grandma's house as a kid, but like going out in the tundra and berry picking, losing your boot in the, in the tundra and having to like figure out how to get your boot out of the ground, you know, that kind of stuff. I mean, that's amazing to do with a person. And I think that's the heart of social work is, you know, a human being with a human and understanding that, yes, I might have some book smart experience about how trauma impacts your body and, you know, how to clinically work with somebody or how systems work or policy or whatever, but I'm not an expert in, any client's life, let alone a community's background. You know, I am a guest here and I recognize that. And I, I think that that can be lost um, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate your answer. Um, and, you know, I think just reflecting on that a little bit, one, I've been trying to implement in, indigeneity somewhat into my like the way I teach, the way that I live my life. And, you know, it's obviously a fine line to walk and, you know, what your appropriation versus, you know, appreciation, for example. But, um, you know, one of the themes that come up whenever you study indigenous culture, indigenous ways of thinking, indigenous paradigms would be the idea of like reciprocity, you know, like things come full circle, you know, given comes back to you. And social work has a problem with that, in my opinion. And I can see why some of these things get put up in place. Just for example, you know, work, going back to the treatment center I worked at, well, these kids, some of them had some really hard lives, you know, and just like, you know, just a, they, they weren't given the proverbial hug growing up, let's say many of them. So they needed a hug. 
But then we send them to a place where hugs are against the rules and like they're not allowed to share. They're not allowed to do anything in that regard. And many of those kids are native indigenous kids. Uh, that, you know what I'm saying? So we go completely counter. And so I, that's one of the things that I wish social work would look in the mirror about, like truly look in the mirror about and say, where have we, where have we gone? Because, you know, I can see you don't want staff giving kids hugs in certain regard, certain to a certain degree, because I've seen adults have relationships with kids, inappropriate relationships with kids, and I can see where that goes. Um, but on the other hand, like we're just shutting off all the reciprocity. We're shutting off, you know, being able to give and take. Even from a social worker side, you know, it might be nice to get something back from the, from the clients. I'm not saying we don't get anything back, but I'm saying, you know, it might be nice if that was able to be more of that kind of relationship. And I do think that's much more accepted here in Alaska than it is in other yeah. places. And so I think Alaska does have that going for itself, which is probably a reflection of um, indigenous folks being integrated in these systems. So that's where I wish social work would look in the mirrors. And one of the places would be the idea of reciprocity and how could we, you know, be more accepting and, you know, even like, how can we stop shutting it off completely with policy, you know, and letting us maybe social workers be a little bit more, have a little bit more autonomy in the decisions that they make. Um, what about you? What do you think? What's something that, that nags at you or that you, when you look at social work that you wish that the, the field um, collectively would look in the mirror and say, like, we're just not doing it right. We need to look at this again. We need to take a closer look and we need to change. I think I have two answers. I mean, kind of going back to everything I just said, I really think that we need to look to indigenous communities. Um, I think the restorative justice piece is there. I think the commun the communion with the environment is there. I think so many of the things that we strive for are really genuinely rooted in indigenous practices and we need to listen. We truly need to shut up and listen. Like I truly mean that. I think the other piece of that is um, we need as I think we can recognize, I mean, I, the whole reason that we're supposed to be social work robots and I know that, if you went to like the NASW, they'd say we don't mean that, but I kind of feel like they do, um, is the power imbalance. You need to recognize the power imbalance with you and, our, and your client. And I feel as I'm getting older in this field, um, that you can be a human and recognize the power imbalance. And I think, you know, um, clearness is kindness and calling it out, like, with your clients or whenever it is like recognizing there is a power imbalance here. I understand I'm the supervisor, but also there's X, Y, and Z going on. How can we collaborate or um, just being a person, you know, I have a client and they drink those lotuses, those lotus drinks. And every week they come in and tell me oh, I need to drink this lotus drink. And I'm just like, I don't like it. I don't want to. That's my personality coming through. I mean, how would it be if I was just very like, we're not talking about this right now. That's inappropriate. Like, you know, I could be that way, but that, that would take away from who I am as a person. And that hurts that rapport and that trust. Um, I'm also not going to try a lotus drink. Like I don't want to, <laughs> you know, so that that's me as a person. That's Lee. Like that's part of me. I'm not, you know, and I, I've worked with staff that would be like, I've worked with colleagues that would totally shoot down a conversation like that, not even entertain it and just jump right into, okay, this isn't about me. I need you to tell me about your trauma. And it's like, well, how are they supposed to feel comfortable with you and open up to you if you're not giving them any kind of glimpse into you as a person? Um, so I think 
it's balance. And I think, um, I think we can still be human and recognize the power imbalance. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, why should they do it if we can't model it for them, right? Why should they be vulnerable if we can't? Exactly. You know, I'm not saying it needs to be equal playing field, but because, you know, there is the power imbalance. But, you know, oftentimes, you know, by just the little bits of vulnerability, I can think of just little stories of me going and sitting out, neck down next to somebody in silence and kind of being sharing their vulnerability that, that goes a long ways. Um, and I can think of many other examples, you know, where, at that treatment facility, you know, you weren't supposed to give special attention to anyone. That's basically the rule. But like many of the the breakthroughs that I had or the most meaningful moments were when I, you know, took an individual out and shot, uh, shot hoops with them. And we, they didn't want to talk, but eventually they start talking and we talk story with each other, basically like you and I are doing right now. And it opens up, um, you know, it opens up those doors, uh, you know, for growth and for change and mutual respect. Um, so I appreciate your answer there. Uh, I want to turn it over to see if we have any questions from the audience. We already have one in the chat, but if you want to call in, you can call in um, right now, or you can on the chat box to the right, if you have a question, you can ask it. We have one from Alicia. She says, thanks for sharing with us, Lee. It was so validating to hear your experience with therapy. I'm working through a lot of compassion fatigue right now and always have to remind myself that it's not a personal weakness. I'm curious, what has been the best and worst advice you've received in your social work journey? P.S. Shut up and listen is awesome advice. Um, I mean, the best advice has been to trust my gut. Um, anytime you ignore your natural instincts in a situation or um, try to put blinders on because you don't like the way that something, the trajectory of something's going, um, has never it's never bode well for me. Um, and so I think listening to your heart and your gut and your body, there's reasons why we get those feelings. Um, is really important and that's hard to do if, so not only listening to your gut, but creating an environment where your body can tell you those things. Cause if you're constantly like stressed or burnt out or anxious or living kind of at an elevated state, you can't listen to your body. Like it's harder for your body to kind of get those messages through. So both of those things, I think, have been helpful for me. The worst advice I ever got, I had a supervisor tell me I was suffering my own success because, you know, I was overloaded with client work and things like that. And I think that um, instead of, so basically what he was saying was I was drumming up business, which is not true. Um, that, uh, you know, just because I was effective, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I don't think, uh if you're ever in a leadership position and a staff's coming to you saying like, I'm overwhelmed with the amount of the sheer amount of work that there is um, dismissing it as you're just working yourself too hard. You know, there, that means that there's, there's clients that need help and um, we need people that can help them. And how can we do that? I think. Um, so yeah, those are kind of the two, the big things that come right into my mind. All right. Well, thanks, Alicia, for the question. And thanks, Lee, for the answer. And it's looking like maybe that's it for questions. Like I said it's a, it's a weird week for us since we operate through the university and the semester just ended. I know I have some folks actually in the audience will be joining me for a class on substance abuse uh, week after next. But for the most part, you know, as for those of us that have been through education, um, we, everybody always has a lot going on. Students, professors, people in the field, a lot going on. But especially during this moment in time, I think, uh, I always say this about a college semester is that 
the best thing about a semester is that it ends. Um, and so, you know, cause we put so much into it, students, professors, whatever you put so much into it that, you know, once that semester is over, like it's just a moment to breathe and we don't really care about anything for, for a little bit. Um, so that's a reason why I think we don't have that many folks here today. Um, but I just want to say, Lee, it's been an absolute pleasure to, to speak with you. It's been a pleasure to hear about you um, before this. Like I said, you have so much respect around the field, especially in you know, the Fairbanks area in Alaska. You have the highest reputation within our department. Um, so from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank you for you know, um, donating us your time, your experience, your wisdom, your knowledge, your stories. Thank you, for, uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I love what you're doing with this um, podcast. I think this is really great. Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, you know, and maybe we'll be able to get together again, you know, in some other context, to have some ideas for some more, uh, you know, dis uh, topic-based discussion uh, in the fall and whatnot. Um, but I'm sure that our stories will intersect, you know, here and there, some no matter what. Um, and so, again, thank you so much for coming on. Um, if for those of you that are listening, uh, you can find episodes. You can you'll be able to find this episode right here on the call-in app, or they'll be posted to Apple and Spotify. So long as we don't have any technical difficulties, which sometimes we have, sometimes we have um, that need to be fixed. This should be up. This episode should be up later this evening. And like I said, if you want to support us, just go ahead and shoot us a review. We'll be here. I'll be here next week with an old colleague of mine named Macy. He's going to talk to us probably mostly about LGBTQ plus issues. Um, that'll be next Saturday at 10 a.m. Alaska time. Um, any last words, Lee? No, just keep doing the good work, man. There's enough of it to go around. There's a lot of people that need help and we're all needed. Yeah, for sure. Take care uh, of yourself. Yeah, same goes to you. And again, one more time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for, for lending us your time. And uh, much I have much respect for you and uh, look forward to the ways we might interact in the, in the future. And if you ever need anything from me, you know where to find me. Yeah, thank you. All right. So the Critical Social Work is a collaborative effort between the University of Alaska Fairbanks and the Department of Social Work and a Conscious Party Productions. This has been a Conscious Party production brought to you on behalf of the University of Alaska Fairbanks Department of Social Work. You've been listening to the Critical Social Worker, a revolutionary storytelling podcast. Your story, my story, our story. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. Thanks, Lee. We'll see you all later. Peace. Have a good one.